Hey mamas, I feel like the thing that I've talked about the most in these past four years of having babies back to back is sleep. I'm constantly comparing with my mom friends whose kid is sleeping, whose kid isn't. Is it a full moon? How many times were your kids up last night? What number of coffees kind of day is it today? And I'm always reminding my husband how much more sleep he got last night than me. (laughs) I'm kidding. He's pretty good at helping me, but you know what I mean. But the truth is, is that research shows that 30 to 50% of children struggle with sleep. But no worries, because Dr. Lullaby offers evidence-based solutions to help reduce the stress and frustration related to pediatric sleep issues. Developed by a sleep doctor, the Dr. Lullaby app helps your family get the sleep they need. You'll receive a customized sleep plan, be able to track your child's progress, and see improvements. You can download the Dr. Lullaby app today in your app store, or you can find them on Instagram at Dr. Lullaby, Facebook at Sleep Better Live Better, Twitter at Dr. Underscore Lullaby, or you can check them out on their website, drlullaby.com. So go find Dr. Lullaby and sleep better, live better. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mimosas with Moms podcast. I'm your host, Abby Williams. Today we're talking about a topic that is really near and dear to my heart. If you know my motherhood journey and my story, you know that this is something that's important to me. We're talking about turning unexpected challenges into triumphs. And I'm joined by the best-selling author and two-time TED Talk speaker, Anne Grady. Anne is here to talk about her most recent book, um, Mind Over Moment, where she helps others cultivate habits and skills to build strength and live life on purpose through science-based approaches. Her book launched this month, and readers will learn strategies taken from Anne's personal experience that transformed her own life. She leads them through how to break out of reactivity, strengthen resilience, and emotional intelligence, and enhance um, relationships. One of the most powerful takeaways from her new book is that resilience is a skill that can be learned, practiced, and honed. I don't think I've ever recorded an episode that I've said so little in. I was literally just in awe of her throughout this recording. Um the tools, the skills, the insight that she pours into us, it's important. Um, So I hope that you enjoy this episode. I hope that you check her out. Everything will be linked in the description of this podcast. Um, Her book, her self-care sheet, her social media handle, make sure that you go check her out. Um, And if you do enjoy this episode, please be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. Your support on the podcast means the world to me, and I really appreciate you being here. So let's get started. Cheers. So Anne, welcome to the Mimosas with Moms podcast. I'm so excited to be connecting with you. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm so excited to be here and I love mimosas. So it's a great fit. (laughs) And I'm a mom. Um, Well, I'm just excited to be a part of it and have a conversation around mental health and resilience and kind of give your listeners some practical tools and strategies that they can use to kind of ramp up their resilience muscle. Yeah. And tell us like you have a really good resilience story. Tell us like your background. Well, so I have been goal oriented my entire life. I was one of those people who was like, I'm going to go to high school, get a master's degree, get married at 26, have my first baby at 28, my second baby at 32. You know, like (laughs) I had it all figured out Um, and everything seemed to be going right. So I got, I went to college, I got a master's degree, I got married at 26 and I had my son Evan two days after my 28th birthday. And I thought, I've mastered adulting. I am (laughs) nailing this. Um, I knew something wasn't right when I was pregnant. Evan would 
kick so hard I would literally drop to the ground. And my doctor joked that he was going to be a soccer player. Yeah. It was a really tumultuous pregnancy. And then when he was born, um, the doctor said, you know, honey, I have been doing this 30 years and I have never seen a baby this angry before, which is always what a first time mom wants to hear. Right. He cried all day and all night. And I kept going to different pediatricians and nobody could tell me what was wrong. And when he was 18 months old, my husband left. So there I am with a baby that cried constantly and I was alone and I was scared. Um, and Evan just kept escalating. And at the age of three, he tried to kill me with a pair of scissors. Yeah. By the age of four, he was on his first antipsychotic. So I was going to neurologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, spiritual healers. Like I was trying to do everything I could, functional medicine, allergists, and nobody could tell me what was wrong. And um, when he was five years old, I met my husband now and when he was uh, seven, I got a call from his teachers. He was in the second grade and his teacher said, Ann Evans kicked a hole in the sheetrock. He has um, taken out an electrical cord and tried to strangle himself. He's threatened to kill two students. He's dislocated a teacher's fingers. And if he can't be here in the next 10 minutes, we have to call the police. So Jay and I drove to Dallas. We live in Austin and we yeah. checked him into the pediatric psych unit of Children's Medical Center and spent the next two months living at the Ronald McDonald house while he underwent treatment. And like Evan's an amazing kid. He's 17 years old now. Um, but you take some extreme autism and mental illness and you stir in learning disabilities and sensory issues and oppositional defiant disorder and mood dysregulation issues. And you have like this perfect neurological storm to where you say up, he says down, you say right, he says left, you say it's time for a shower and he threatens to kill you. And it has definitely been a long, a long journey. And um, then in 2014, he was hospitalized again. And I was diagnosed with a tumor in my salivary gland that resulted in facial paralysis, um, a scratched cornea requiring eye surgery. Um, the weekend before my eye surgery, I fell down a flight of stairs and broke my foot in four places. And then I started six weeks of radiation. So there's just been the average person experiences five to six traumas in a lifetime, but I have always been an overachiever. So <laughs> I'm just I'm holding out for the record. <laughs> I love like your humor about it though. You know what you I mean? Like laugh. you just have to kind of laugh like when things are just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, and like, let's back up to, you know, your for like a first time mom and things are nothing's going the way that you thought it was going to and you don't know what to do you're seeing all these specialists you're seeing going to different doctors your husband leaves tell us like what that was like you know the hardest part of it well there were two parts that were really challenging for me one yeah. is I had never wanted to fail at anything. And I felt like family was the most important thing. And it was the thing that I felt like I was failing at. And because nobody could tell me what was wrong before Evan was ever hospitalized the first time, you know, pediatricians kept telling me if I were just more consistent, he would be better. Or if I were just a dis better disciplinarian, or if I had more firm boundaries, or maybe if I had a husband or, you know, and so it was, I literally couldn't tell if I was losing my mind. Was he really that out of control or was I imagining it? And you start to question everything about yourself when right. your identity is being a mom. And then all of a sudden things go haywire. It's you start to doubt everything that you ever thought you knew about yourself and everything else. And it takes you to this point where, you know, you love your kids so much and it's hard when you don't like them because Evan can be very mean and aggressive and, and say things that are, that you would never ever tolerate from anybody else in your life. And so mm -hmm. you're kind of not kind of you're, you're a battered woman, but you can't leave because the batterer is your child. Yeah. So it, it's, it's exhausting. It's overwhelming. It's sad. It's, every emotion that you can possibly imagine all at the same time while trying to work full time and build a business and be a single mom and support the family and, you know, navigate all of that. It's, right. it's life, right? Cause I feel like, you know, you probably went through like a little bit of a grieving process there in the beginning. 
It's funny you said that because I'm still going through, like grief is not a linear process. You you can get angry and then get to acceptance and then go back. Like we just got a report yesterday, his neuropsych report that kind of outlines his current IQ, his current functioning level, what the prediction will be. And his whole life, I've kind of, I don't know if it's naivete or if it's just hope, but I kept thinking maybe we'll find a medication that works or a therapy that works. Or, you know, he was four and I was like, we've got plenty of time. And then he's seven. It's like, it's okay. We've got time. And he's 12. We've got time. When he was 15, we had to send him to a therapeutic boarding school in Idaho. Um, He wasn't safe. We weren't safe. It was just not a good situation. And this neuropsych report basically says, you know, his cognitive delays are significant and most likely won't change. His brain is atypical. And so he just does not see the world like other people see it. And so I was talking to my husband last night. I'm grieving all over again because for the first time, it's squishing this hope that he will be able to grow out of it. It's just changing what success looks like. It's changing the definition of what a happy, healthy life for him is like. And it's really, really hard. Yeah. So what kind of supports do you feel like you've put in place over the years? Because I'm sure that's constantly evolving and changing as you're going through different things for yourself to survive. So there's the resources that I use for him that help. And then there are the things I do for myself. So he's been in therapy since he was 11 months old. He started early childhood intervention at 11 months old and, and has been in some form of therapy ever since. And by proxy, um, even though I've had my own therapist and my own work, uh, I've also gotten therapy through his therapist because it's all coaching on how to deal with a child with such severe behavioral problems. And so it's, it was constantly being taught new techniques and new strategies and trying new things. And every time one didn't work, it's like going back to the drawing board And it's been literally 17 years of that. Um, For me, one of the things that I did was before I could even afford it, um, I hired a caregiver to come help out at our house a few hours a week. Everybody kept telling me I needed to to take respite and to get sleep because, you know, you couldn't sleep through the night. And I kept thinking, I can't afford it. I'm not able to do it. And I did it anyway. And it was so profound that I was able to be more productive at work and make up for what I was paying plus some. Um, So that was huge. My friends have been my lifeline. I'm very fortunate that I have have some really great friends who have been with me for the whole ride and know what I'm going through. Um, Gosh, there have been so many things. There's Uh, the hospitalization was uh, something I was terrified to do, but it was profound in in learning how to sit with it and be with it. Uh, My husband is incredible. You know, he has a daughter. We have a daughter. She's a year older than Evan, but she's his biological daughter. Um, And so, you know, that was certainly a journey trying to blend the family. Um, But I, I started keeping strategies, things that, you know, I thought I have a master's in organizational communication. I was teaching these CEOs and leaders how to communicate, collaborate, not enter power struggles. And yet I was stuck in that trap all the time. And so I kind of threw everything out. And that collection of strategies became my first book, which is 52 strategies for life, love and work. And it literally were things that I was doing that were helping me survive the day. And I didn't always think I could survive the day. There were so many nights where I was so exhausted. I just didn't think I could keep going. But you tap into family and friends. And my mom ended up moving close to us so she could help. And our next door neighbor had a daycare. And so she was so gracious. And even though Evan would hurt her and damage her house, she would continue to watch him and, and be a source of support. So you can't do it alone. Like you, yeah. you absolutely need a village and therapy and resources and support. But one of the biggest resources for me was NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And yeah. so 
I started taking classes with them and joined a support group and finding people who are further along in your journey is helpful. Even if they don't have the answers, they can relate. Yeah. And so now I, you know, I've got four books and a portion of all those proceeds go to them, go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Central Texas, because they've been such a huge life support for us. And tell us about the books. So the first one I just mentioned, it's literally a collection of strategies, one a week over the course of a year to improve relationships, um, to accomplish goals, to keep your sanity, leverage your strengths, understand how to stay motivated. Um, The second book is based on my second TED Talk. It's called Strong Enough, Choosing Courage, Resilience, and Triumph. And that is full of activities and self-assessments and tools that you can use to build courage and resilience. And then the third book, the one that just came out, I'm super excited about it. I just, I'll show it to you there. Uh, It's called Mind Over Moment, Harness the Power of Resilience. And it is literally how to develop a resilient mindset, skill set, and the ability to reset. So it's neurology, it's psychology, it's really practical things you can do. And then I developed a journal to go with it because it's really powerful when you can work things out that you've just learned. And there was a special education teacher that attended one of my keynotes. And at the end, I was doing a book signing and she came up to me and she kind of storyboarded my entire speech. She drew pictures of all of the concepts. And I was so blown away and impressed that that's how the journal was born. I just wanted yeah. her to illustrate it. So <laughs> illustrated the journal. It's fabulous. And yeah. I'm just, I couldn't be more excited and proud to, to birth these into the world. It is literally like birthing a child. It is painful. It is rewarding. <laughs> it is everything in between to write a book. So tell us, I guess, like where you are in your journey that now Mind Over Moment has been born. I think I'm still in the journey like everybody else. This is a practice. It's not like you're either resilient or not. It's a journey. And some days are better than others. And the days that aren't, you have to give yourself grace and be compassionate towards yourself because you can't treat other people with compassion if you don't treat yourself that way first. Um, I think I'm at a place now where I have these great tools to pull from, but it doesn't mean every tool works every time. Right. And I think I am still in the grief process trying to accept, um, you know, Evan's going to be 18 in April and he's going to be now we have to figure out the next chapter. So there's anxiety in figuring out what the rest of his life will look like. And, you know, but the thing that I now know that was so profound for me is that we get caught up being busy We just kind of react our way through our life. Each day becomes the same day, especially when you're a parent and you're a mom, you know, you're waking up and you've got a first job before you ever get to your second one. You're getting the kids (laughs) ready. And and that if you don't have kids, that sounds like it wouldn't be a big deal. But when you have kids, especially ones with like oppositional defiant disorder, that's like a huge deal. And I, by the time you get to work, you're like ready for it. There were plenty of days where I like dragged him kicking and screaming to school, dropped him off with the special ed teacher. I was like, tag, you're it. I need a few hours where I just am not wrestling this child to the ground Uh, or or yelling, having him yell and scream and kick and bite and spit and do all of these things. So I, I, I now know that. I used to try to numb the uncomfortable feelings. Like most of us try to run from discomfort. We don't like it, whether it's uncertainty, which our brain views as a threat, um, which all of us are feeling right now, Um, whether it's sadness or anxiety or fear. I think our tendency is to run from those or to try to numb them. But the research shows that when you do that, you actually increase the duration of the emotion and the intensity of the emotion. So I have learned, and the concept of mind over moment is learning to observe your thoughts, your habits, your behaviors in the moment so that you get to choose whether or not you engage them. And I think one of the things that we're guilty of is we think our thoughts are facts. We think that everything we think is a fact. And the truth is, Our brain doesn't care if we're happy or content. Our brain just wants us to be safe. It's constantly in protection mode. 
So it magnifies the negative. We have something called the negativity bias. It means it is so easy to scan the environment for all the crappy things in our day, all the things that are wrong, all the problems with the world. And right now, let's face it, there's no shortage of them to find. Right. But if we are not conscious of that, then we go into a negativity spiral and it almost feels like it's impossible to get out of it. So I've learned the neurology of really changing the neural structure and function of your brain, conditioning yourself to think differently um, and to manage what I need in my life, like right now. Yeah. And it's so, it's so simple. (laughs) I'm like, so let's like talk about this. Okay. All right. Let's dig in. Yeah. So I mean, like how, how do you even like start this? You know what I mean? So I, my husband will tell you, I'm the most pessimistic, motivational speaker he's ever met. Like people ask me how I stay so motivated and positive. And I promise you, I am not out high-fiving sunbeams. There are not doves released when I walk into a room. There's not unicorns farting rainbows in my bedroom. It's like a choice. (laughs) It's It's a real choice. And so the first thing is just to be aware that your brain is working against you. If you are not taking back control of it, most of us don't challenge it because we just assume that's the way it is. But starting to pay attention to, you know, over 45% of everything we do every day is a habit and our brain depends on habits. It's a cognitive shortcut. So it doesn't have to work as hard. The challenge is your brain doesn't know the difference between the habits that help you and the ones that hurt you, the ones that build your resilience and the ones that sabotage it. And our thoughts are habits the way we think about things is a habit and you can start to challenge those. So for example, I started, I was having so many pity parties. Like my friends would ask how I was doing. And I was like, it's not fair. My life is horrible. My son is awful. Like it's how come you can take your kid to the grocery store and my kid takes down a complete end cap. And, you know, and what I learned is that while those thoughts might be true, They're not serving me. So I did two things. One, I put a sign on my bathroom mirror and it's just written in Sharpie marker that says, what do you want to see today? And I look at that every morning because when you set your intention for what you want to find, we have something called selective attention. And it means that we find what we look for. It's kind of like if I told you, you're going to go on a diet, but you can't have chocolate. Whatever you do, don't think about chocolate, right? You can think about anything else, but don't think about chocolate. And then you think about chocolate constantly. Well, that's what we do with our emotions. I don't want to think about sadness. I don't want to think about stress. I don't want to think about anxiety. And it exacerbates it. Well, your brain can't just stop thinking. It has to look for something different. So by saying, what do I want to see today? I want every morning I answer the question. Today, I want to find gratitude. Today, I want to look for humor. Today, I want to look for kindness. Today, I want to look for ways to make somebody feel good or to give somebody a compliment, you know, and it's, it's setting your intention so that you start looking for those things. Because what we know about our brain is that when you start looking for the good stuff and you start savoring it, like really internalizing and experiencing it and marinating in it, you change your brain structure and function, making it easier to find the good things. Um, there's something called experience dependent neuroplasticity. And it basically is a fancy way of saying the more you think and behave a certain way, the easier it is to think and behave that way. So the more time you spend anxious, the easier it is for your brain to fire that way. So the first thing I did is what do I want to look for? And the second thing I did is you have to come up with a, an almost a mantra to replace the message. It's not fair. Woe is me. This is awful. Life sucks. I'm miserable. Because it's really easy to get stuck in that. It, it is so easy to get it stuck. It is in so that. Like, easy to get stuck on your pity party parade. And well, and even if it's true, I mean, yes, you should have concern and empathy and compassion for yourself. For yourself but after yeah. a certain point, it's no longer constructive. I like and, like what you said about like, it's not serving you. You know what right, I mean? Right. So I had to come up with an alternative and I have three, you know, three or four sayings that I have written all over my house. One is, and it's overused, but it is what it is. And it becomes what you make it. So that became my go-to. It is what it is. It becomes what I make it. One, one was I'll figure it out. You know, I've, I've made it this far. I'll figure it out. One of them was all you can do is all you can do. 
because I'm a perfectionist. And I kept thinking, but I'm not doing as much as I could be doing. A better mother would try another therapy and another this and another that and would be more consistent and wouldn't give in. And so all you can do is all you can do. And then the one I say every morning is, Anne, you got this, right? You got this. Yeah. And you try to talk to yourself like you would a friend. We say things to ourselves. I mean, think about what you've said to yourself so far today. I'm sure... <laughs> Yeah. Right. Like well, I've us- like I've been on the anxiety like pity party train for a while now, probably. I'm well, like, you, you know, this year especially, I feel like a lot of us are just like sitting in anxiety. We're sitting in like a collective grief, mm-hmm. you know, of all the missed experiences this year. Um, this year's been really heavy for I would say everybody. <laughs> well, um, for sure, like seventy six percent of Americans say they're lonely. Um, yeah, forty-five you percent know, of American adults are struggling with anxiety and depression. Antidepressants right. have gone up right. like tenfold since COVID started, and that was right. after a four hundred percent increase since nineteen eighty-seven. Right. And so, I mean, no judgment. I'm on everything but roller skates. Yeah. But, you know, as someone who was diagnosed with depression at a young right. age, um, I know how easy it is to get stuck in it. And, um, and man, this year has just given us all a run for our money. Yeah. I'm like, if you weren't struggling with these things before, you probably are this year. Um, and you know, like, so if we're all kind of sitting in like this collective grief and we're on the pity party train of, you know, I had to cancel holidays and, you know, my parents were not my child's birth because of COVID or whatever, like moms are kind of going My daughter didn't get to graduate from high school. Yeah, you know. Or go to prom or. Yeah, you know, like so many things that like we've been missing out on and it's so easy to get on the this isn't fair, um, woe is me, whatever. How do we kind of get out of this together? Well, the first is knowing it's okay to feel that way. Like I'd worry about you if you weren't feeling some (laughs) level of anxiety. Our brains use uncertainty as a threat. It would rather have an outcome we don't like than one we don't know, right? Right. And the election is a perfect example, regardless of which side you're on. Everybody was like, okay, after the election, at least we'll have some clarity. And it's after the election and we still have no idea what's going on. Right. It's like, yeah, it's going to be hard. I think. I think the first is to not run from it, to know that it's normal to be okay sitting in that discomfort, but then start paying attention to how you're talking about things. Cause our brain, our mindset is literally the story we tell ourselves. There's something called an explanatory style. And it's the way we explain the adversity in our life. And so I, I started paying attention to how I was talking about Evan, about my life, about COVID, about anything, right? And so if you hear yeah. yourself repeatedly go, I know it's horrible. It's awful. I'm so exhausted. I'm so stressed. I'm so overwhelmed. Your brain believes you and your neurochemistry responds to that. And so even if you don't realize it, you're creating all of these stress hormones that add inflammation, that make it difficult to sleep, regulate mood, maintain focus and attention. You start damaging neurons. I'm like raising my hand. Like, yeah, yeah. 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 Everybody is, right? But the good news is that you can reverse those changes. And that's why I wrote the book, because there are things that you can do to to change that, the first is being aware you're in it. I mean, I, I, I hate to sound cliche, but awareness is the first step. Like yeah. if you are using hopeless language and you are talking about how overwhelmed and stressed you are, your body is preparing you for battle to protect you. And so in order to offset that, I'm not suggesting you tell yourself, this is great. I wish we had a global pandemic every year, right? right. But you can shift the message to I'm grateful that my family's healthy or I, you know, I know that we'll figure out a way through this or man, we'll look back at this and we will extract some lessons. And one of the biggest resilience building strategies is making meaning of challenging events. And it's virtually impossible to do it when you're in the middle of the event, but you're able to look back with perspective and it's called post-traumatic growth. What, What did I learn? How did I grow? How do I get stronger? And if this isn't an opportunity to build that muscle, I don't, I don't know what is. So, you know, let yourself feel it, but then there are things you can do to regulate your nervous system to get back on track. And that's where this idea of mindfulness comes in. 
For me, it's like really centering and gratitude. If I'm like spiraling and I'm on my hamster wheel running laps up in my brain on the negative, like, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. I don't have the support that I need right now. Motherhood is too much. Um, I'm a mom of four in this pandemic and three of them are very tiny. And um, like I'm burnt out. And I'm like waving my white flag and, you know, it's like 2020, nobody is coming to help. Um, And it's hard, you know, and I feel like at the end of the day, some days I'm just like so worn out and so just like exhausted and I have nothing left to give and my patience is zero. And it's very easy to get on this and the, oh my gosh, poor me, poor me, poor me. And last night. Last night I was like, no, you're fine. Last night I was um, bathing my two toddlers and I could like feel it in myself, like the physical stress, you know, and I just started saying out loud all the things that I was like grateful for. And I could like instantly feel my body responding. You know, I'm like, I'm so thankful I have hands to bathe my children. I'm so thankful that we have hot water for this bath. You know, I'm so thankful that we have soap. (laughs) I'm so thankful that, you know, and I just like kept like listing them. And the toddlers are probably looking at me like mom's lost her mind. But, you know, teaching them to do it like gratitude has been found to be the number one predictor of well-being. And it's a huge component of resilience. And the, the reason for this is that when your brain is focusing on something you're grateful for, yeah. It knows it's not being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. So <laughs> in the moment where you are looking for things to yeah. be grateful for, no matter how small, in fact, the smaller, the better, and the more specific, because right. your brain likes novelty. So if you're like, oh, I'm grateful for my family, but you say that every day, your brain stops paying attention. Right. So it's like, I'm, I'm grateful that um, my, you know, my little nugget just flashed me in the face and is giggling, right? Whatever it is. Right. Um right. Because when you're focused on that, one, you you offset the negativity bias. You start looking for those things throughout your day. But your brain also registers that as going, oh, this you're thinking logically. You're thinking clearly. You must not be in an imminent danger. And so it stops. It drops cortisol, the stress hormone, by 23 percent. It releases serotonin. I could like instantly feel it. You know what I mean? I could instantly feel the weight like slowly drifting away. Absolutely. It's so powerful. And, you know, when I was going through facial paralysis, I was reading the research and I started a, a delicious moments board and, and a delicious moment is any moment that is beautiful that we typically run past in our search for happily ever after. Yeah. Um, but we miss these little delicious moments. And the research shows that when you step outside of it and experience it and really appreciate it, you prime your brain for more of those. Um, And so someone told me, start keeping a gratitude board, a delicious moments board. And I thought, what do I have to be grateful for? Half my face is paralyzed. I'm a professional speaker and I'm drooling and have a speech impediment. My kid just got out of another psychiatric hospital. And so at first it was like, are you freaking kidding me? Like, this is the last (laughs) thing I want to do. But I started doing it. My grandma always used to say, you know, honey, if enough people tell you you're tired, maybe it's time you lay down. Like if enough people give you the advice, there's probably some truth to it. She also said, if you act like an ass, don't be surprised if people try to ride you, but that's a different. (laughs) Um, But I was like, okay, I'm grateful. I have half a smile. I'm grateful that I didn't lose my hearing because when you have facial paralysis, that's often accompanied with it. I'm grateful that my nerve in my face wasn't severed. It was just damaged because there's a potential it could come back. I'm grateful that I'm able to write a book, you know, And I started, like you're saying, it literally changes your physiology and your neurology. And it might not happen immediately, but they've shown that a practice for two weeks increases happiness levels for up to six months. It'll at least get you through the bath time madness. (laughs) I'm like, I can't say it like, help me, you know, all day or, you know, uh, (laughs) help me sleep all night. It got me through the bath, you know. I'm going to give you an activity that you can use for yourself and your kids because yeah. the, so three deep breaths resets your entire nervous system. And most of us take shallow breaths and you can tell how you breathe when you're breathing normally and you put one hand on your chest and one hand on your diaphragm and you're just breathing normally. Right. And, and for most of us, as we get more stressed, our chest moves more than our stomach. And that means that your brain's literally not getting enough oxygen. It's diverting blood and oxygen to your limbs to prepare you to fight, freeze, or run away. 
So there's a technique that opera singers and elite athletes use called diaphragmatic breathing. And so what you do is on the inhale, pretend there's like a giant balloon in your stomach. And on the inhale, you're filling it with air. So we're all taught to suck in our stomachs, right? But for this exercise, pooch it out. So you pooch out your belly as far as you can on the inhale. You hold it for a couple of seconds. And then on the exhale, you release it, but almost pretend like there's a weight on the bottom of the exhale, bringing it deeper and lower because the exhale is actually the part of the breath that puts you back into that relaxed part of your nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. So this activity I learned from the women's Canadian Olympic rowing champion. And (laughs) I thought it was so silly at first. And then I started adopting it and I taught it to my kids. And I do this multiple times a day and it was so easy. And you're basically, you know how when you have kids and it's Thanksgiving, they trace their hands and make a turkey. Yeah. Okay. So it's like that, but you're tracing your fingers with your other, you're tracing your hand with your other hand. So you're using like a finger from one hand to trace And and as you move like up your thumb, like start moving up your thumb and take a deep inhale, pooching out your belly, get to the top of your thumb and hold it. Now exhale as you move down your thumb, take it lower and lower. Now inhale as you move up your index finger, hold it. And as you move down your index finger, exhale and inhale as you go up your middle finger hold it exhale inhale as you go up your ring finger hold it exhale inhale as you go up your pinky finger hold it exhale So a deeply relaxed person takes seven breaths a minute. I meditate to sleep every night because when your brain is focused on how you're breathing, it knows it's not in threat. So the, this technique with your hand is a great, you can do it under the table in a meeting, a zoom call before you get out of bed. It's basically a way to reset your nervous system. And if you feel lightheaded when you do it, it's because your brain is literally not used to getting enough oxygen. Yeah. And I just like did that with her. I can like, I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's profound. It yeah. So when you say that you're meditating to sleep, are you doing this breathing exercise to sleep? Is that what you're doing? So I, I am the t- most type A human. Like yeah. I am ridiculously uptight and type A. <laughs> I say that because... When people call me to meditate, I was like, seriously, you want me to sit in a full lotus and eat tofu and find me then? Like, this is not happening. And and at first, you know, I just kept dismissing it. And I kept doing the research and more research and more research. And I couldn't believe that there are thousands of studies that document the physical, mental, emotional, psychological, and health benefits of meditating and mindfulness. And I kept thinking, why... Why is sitting quietly so helpful? I felt like I was playing whack-a-mole with my thoughts. So I would be like, okay, breathe. What are we going to have for dinner? Okay, hold on. Breathe. I forgot to call my mother. You know, like my mind was going and I kept thinking, screw it. I'm failing. This is ridiculous. Until I learned that minute's working. So the goal of meditation is not to find your Zen or this place of peace. It is to train your brain to direct its attention where you want it to go instead of where it naturally goes on its own. So it makes it less likely to hit the panic button. It gives you back control. We all have gray matter in our brain. It's the part of the brain that's responsible for emotional regulation, focus, uh, attention. And when we're stressed, we lose density in that gray matter. So every time you catch your mind wandering when you're meditating, you know it's working. Right. And when you bring yourself back to a focal point, usually your breath, you're growing back the density in the gray matter, making you less likely to be as emotionally reactive. And it's the magic number is seven to nine minutes a day. So 
it can be through an app. I downloaded an app that helped me do it, a guided meditation. It can be just breathing. It can be a body scan, like progressive muscle relaxation. I imagine, you know, on Nickelodeon, yeah. they have that goo that falls on people's heads. I my kids are older now, but I yeah. imagine like that goo is like slowly dripping over my head, yeah. slowly covering my eyes. And while it's doing that, I'm just relaxing each part of the body. And I get to my shoulders and I'm like, oh, I need to take the dog to the vet, you know? So it's not like you do this <laughs> perfectly. Yeah. It's the, the point is to catch yourself when you are wandering. And sometimes I'll spend the whole time wandering and not realize it. And that's okay too. There are times yeah. I fall asleep when I'm meditating. Yeah. And that's fine too. It just means your body needs rest. Right. Um, so there's no way to screw it up. It's just every time you bring, you catch yourself wandering and you bring yourself back to your breath, you're teaching your brain that you control where it goes. And so when I'm laying in bed at night, I literally just, I imagine a good breath, a, a correct breath should be like a wave. Yeah. It shouldn't be short and choppy. It should be like a long, beautiful wave. And so I slow my breathing down. I imagine Nickelodeon goo dropping on top of my head and going down my body. And my mind wanders to all the things I need to do and the email I forgot to send and the errand I didn't get to run and the person I may have disappointed and Oh, she looked at me funny. What was she thinking? She must not like me. Like all of those things are so normal. Right. It's training your brain to keep going back every time you catch it instead of like judging yourself and evaluating yourself. I shouldn't be thinking this way. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I can't even meditate correctly. What is wrong with me? <laughs> instead, it's like, okay, this is working. And you just kind of observe the thought. You notice it. Yeah. You catch yourself wandering. You just kind of watch it pass by like a cloud and you go back to your breath and you'll spend the entire time doing that. Right. That's the goal. Is to put your mind back in the moment. It's to control your attention. Yeah. Because we spend, you know, Harvard in 2010, they came out with this study that we spend 47% of our time thinking about something other than what we're doing. And that <laughs> Isn't that horrible? Well, and that was in 2010. Can you imagine a decade later, right? right? All of the technology. But the problem is we spend so much time dwelling on the past and ruminating about things that happened and feeling anxious about the unknown of the future that we don't spend a whole lot of time being where we are when we're there, paying attention on purpose to how you're thinking, how you're behaving, how you're, what your habits are. Right. Yeah. So I found myself, my, I'd be talking to my kids and checking email at the same time. Like, yeah. hey guys, I just need to finish this one, one last message. Or you're at a red light and they're sitting in, in the car and you're like, oh, I can knock out this one email at a red light. And it's like, without even realizing it, we're training the next generation to be distracted and irritable and unfocused and not. Right. Present. Right. That is me. It's all of us. I know. I'm like, I need to start practicing these things. And I think that these are really important tools that you're giving us. And these are all outlined in your book. Yes. Yeah. They are. So the mindset is the belief system, the things yeah. you tell yourself, your habits, the skill set are things like social connection, you know, and in a yeah. time when we're told we need to be socially distanced, what we yeah. really mean is physical distance with social connection. It's the greatest predictor of happiness. Yeah. Um, social connection is huge. Proactively cultivating positive emotions, like watch Netflix comedy specials, listen to <laughs> yeah. the radio on the comedy channel. Your brain can't tell the difference between a real laugh and a forced laugh. And so it, it when you're laughing and you're smiling, your brain knows it's safe. Yeah. When you're grateful or you're looking at the bright side of things, your brain knows it's safe. You're, you're basically learning to train your brain the way you want it to be not the way it defaults because the way it defaults is nothing more than protection. Yeah. It, it's not about happy. It's not about content. The other thing that was so powerful for me is to learn that I kept thinking I was doing something wrong because I wasn't always happy. Yeah. And the truth is our brain, we're not supposed to be happy all the time. Right. Like, you can't have happy emotions if you don't have crappy emotions. Right. And most of us feel like we're failing miserably when we're not happy. And we compare our insights to social media and other people's perfect life with their perfect kids. 
but they didn't post the fight they had with their partner <laughs> next to the dishwasher because they can't load silverware. And they didn't, you know, post the antidepressants they just got from their doctor because they're miserable. They post the good moments. Right. And I think our expectation of wanting to feel good all the time and be happy all the time is sabotaging our ability to find those moments of joy and find the moments that we can savor. I love this. I'm like, these are just like aha moments for me, you know, and our family, we sit around the dinner table together every single night. We eat dinner oh, together I love that. and we talk every, every day about the high and low of our day. And we do that, you know, and we talk about things that we're grateful for and what was the best part. We try to find the joy in our day and we try and normalize, you know, that there are bad parts of your day and, you know, mom and dad lose things too, or, you know, mm-hmm. we, we do things bad and we bring our apologies to the dinner table. Sorry, mom lost her cool on you guys earlier. Yeah. My bad, you know, I love it. So we, we do the highs and lows and I always feel like the highs that my kids share and their joys, you're like, I didn't even like, you know, pick up on that or like, oh, yeah, you know, like that little moment like meant something really big to them. And I think that those are really important. And like, it's cool to share those things with your kids. And it's a great reminder of how many things we miss yeah. in our search for success and happiness. You know, like right. one time my son saw a rainbow and we do that at the dinner table. We talk about successes you've had or things yeah. you've thought of or things that made you smile. And um, my girlfriend calls it basements and balconies. Yeah. You know, what was your balcony? What was your basement? And, um, and he said there was this rainbow that he saw and it, it had all the colors perfectly. Like you could see every single color, just like when yeah. you draw a rainbow and he just kept going on and on about this rainbow. And I thought, when was the last time I was just awestruck and sat in that moment and like a rainbow savored the rainbow because we're like, oh crap, it rained. Now I got to wash my car again. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to drive. In the I got to walk the dogs because the backyard's muddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the backyard's muddy and they're coming in the house. You know, yeah. and he was just like, I love the rainbow. And sometimes it's so great. Kids are reminders of the simplest things that yeah. we take for granted and it, and it brings us back. And the other, you know, the other big thing I just want to make sure I say is I think we've gotten so good at prioritizing our schedules. Like I bet your schedule is pretty prioritized. You, you have four kids, (laughs) like it's probably like every hour is accounted for nap time, food time, exercise time, whatever. None of us schedule our priorities. Right. Like if you tracked your time for a week, would it be reflective of what you say is most important to you? Because for most of us, our computer and our phone gets the majority of our time and attention. And not to say that you don't need to have attention to attuned to that, but once someone once told me this, I don't remember who it was, but it changed the way I looked at things. They said, your, your resume and your eulogy shouldn't be the same thing. Oh, isn't that bad? I, I, because yeah. I'm so goal oriented. I was like, well, I right. have to get to this career and I have to do yeah. this. And why are my friends moving ahead faster? And this speaker's doing better. And this author sold more books. And why do they have more reviews? And, and I finally just had to get to this point where it's like, but I wanted to say that I was kind and a good person yeah. and I would help my neighbors and yeah. people are going to stand over your grave and they're not going to be like, damn, Abby, Abby works 80 hours a week. She's a workhorse. <laughs> That's not what they're going to say, but yet we, we don't do it. So I have this self-care sheet and I'm, I want to give it to your listeners. I'll tell yeah. them to get it, but it's just six areas of your life that should be important priorities. And every month, you know, I sit down, I have a glass or four of wine. I go through, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. It's vodka. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I go through this activity, you know, and I just set a goal in one area, just one area. Yeah. Um, because it's important to be reminded of what's really important. Yeah. And tell us where uh, my listeners can find you, the book, the self-care sheet, all your things. All right. So if you would like a copy of a resilient self-assessment, a yeah. self-care sheet, and a poem that I wrote a couple of years ago that could not be more fitting than right now, as well as an opportunity to join our Resilience Reset community, 
Um, you can text the word strength yeah. to the number 22454. So strength to 22454, or you can go to angradygroup.com slash strong. And those will be linked in the description of this podcast as well. So angrandgroup.com has all kinds of information, articles, resources, you know, everything that you could think of, tips, tools, strategies, blog posts, all kinds of things that you can do to, the the goal is subtle change. It's not to change, make these huge, that's why only 1% of New Year's resolutions stick. Yeah. At the end of the year, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to drink less. I'm going (laughs) to exercise more. I'm going to spend more time with my kids. You know, by the time it's January 15th, you have a beer in one hand, a cheeseburger in the other. You went to the gym. It hurt. Your kids are driving you crazy. And you go right back to what you were doing before. And so it's like, pick one thing. Pick one thing. And because habits are difficult to cultivate, if you can connect it to a habit you already have, you're more likely to do it. So you brush your teeth every day. Connect a gratitude habit to it. Every time you brush your teeth, think of something that brings joy. And start thinking about instead of activities that reduce stress, start looking at activities that bring joy. It's a simple shift in perspective, but it can be really, really helpful. Yeah. And then you're on social media as well. Yep. At Anne Grady Group. And Anne has an E because my mother is cruel. At (laughs) Anne Grady Group. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining me on the Mimosas with Moms podcast. Um, Make sure that you go get the books. They'll be linked in the description of this podcast as well. Make sure you go follow Anne. And Anne, thank you. I got so much out of this. I feel like I just like watched you the entire time we did this recording, just like in awe of everything that you are putting out into the universe. So thank you for sharing this. Um, And Cheers to a more mindful moment. Thank you so much for having me, Abby. And man, best of luck with your big, beautiful family. (laughs) And remember, just breathe. Just breathe. Thank Thank you. Thank you.